0: Welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. Uh, today we have on Chris Davis. And so just to give you guys some background real quick, I wrote a book a couple of months ago called The Art of Dharma. And Chris read it and he sent me an email. And I've never heard about him or have met him before. But the quality of the email was such that one, I could tell that he really read it, the book and he got it and that he was living his life along kind of the same lines, which is essentially the best way that I can help the world is one, make art. Two, change the story that many artists have that uh, in order to make art, you basically have to be bad at capitalism, which is a whole thing that I've talked about on some of my previous podcasts. And, um, He reached out, he shared what he had been doing for like the last, you know, like 10 or 15 years helping artists, and it was just such a sincere email. And I could tell that he was, quote unquote, one of my people that was like, let's just do a podcast. I don't do many podcasts lately because your boy is busy, but I wanted to share how this happened so that you guys listening can really feel like, when you feel called, Reach out, not just to me, but to anybody, because you never know about if it's the just right timing. And this was the just right timing. So if you want to uh, um, hear the story of someone who resonates with the idea that maybe, maybe art can save the world, and also you can play the game of art and not be broke all the time, and that if you're good at making money, look to help artists. Let me just get into all of that on this podcast. Uh, as always, if you want to help this podcast to continue, and you don't want me to read ads for why you should drink AG1 or whatever else the most popular current ad reads are, uh, the best way you can support this podcast is one, share it. Two, uh, Get on the newsletter if you aren't already. And three, uh, check out my courses. So I've got two courses on my website. One is about how to journal. Um, And it's not... uh, If you're not looking to have your mind blown, don't check it out because I go deep into some Jungian concepts and also I teach you how to journal in a way that can heal trauma. And it's not for the faint-hearted, but it's pretty dope. And the other one is called the Dharma Journal, and it's about how to create a digital journal on your computer that you can use every day to help yourself remember what is it that you're doing in your life. Um, And I use a technique called the Dharma Pyramid that I created for myself a couple of years ago. And there's also five guided meditations in there um, that my boy Graham helped me make that are uh, pretty deep. If, uh, I can say myself and you know what? Fuck it. I can. Uh, they are, and they're dope. So if you want to check those out, um, I massively, uh, discount how much I charge for them because I think it's cool to do that and I don't need the money, but, uh, it would be nice to not have to pay out of pocket to produce the podcast, which, you know, depending on the month, I don't, but, uh, Actually, that's not true. I pay out of pocket every month, actually. Uh, But I'm happy to do so because I like to pay artists well. And so the artists that I work with, and it's mainly Graham, um, I like that I can pay them well. And I do. And it feels good. So those are the ways that you can support the podcast. And as always, thank you for your time and your attention. Because in this world, it means a lot. So without further ado, please enjoy today's podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. uh, I'm really excited to talk today because long story short, um, I put out a book about a month ago and you wrote me a email um, that just landed in me like, I need to talk to this dude. So I was just about to ask you off air, like how did you find my work and like what brought you to the point of sending me this email? And you were like, are you sure you want to talk about this before we record? So I just hit record. And here we go. The floor is yours, brother.
1: Thanks, Eric. Uh, Really happy and honored to be here. Uh, Honestly, your work has kind of been uh, a part of my life for several years now. I guess. uh, So I've been listening to the Aubrey Marcus podcast since around 2015. And at this point, I don't even know how I found Aubrey's work. I think, I know that was kind of like a, a time in my life of like, I turned 30 and I kind of decided I didn't like anything about my life. And I started tapping into you know spiritual books, uh, cognitive psychology books, and really digging into myself on a deeper level than I ever had. And so I know the first podcast I found was uh, You Made It Weird with Pete Holmes. And then that led me to Duncan Trussell. I may have heard Aubrey on Duncan Trussell. And then... Started reading Joseph Campbell, started you know listening to Alan Watts and a lot of the kind of common um, spiritual teachers that you know have kind of repopularized over the last five to ten years, I would say. So I think that I first became aware of your work through podcasting with Aubrey, and I even remember when you were presented as like I, I probably listened to your first episode that you did with him. I don't know if the Game of Life podcast was the first one or one of the first. I'm also a big fan of third eye drops, and so I've heard you, you know, probably more on third eye drops than I have, you know, or as much on on that podcast as I have on this one. So you know, your work has kind of been there. You know, it's been great with all of these podcasts and um, and people that you know you become aware of through podcasts. You feel a resonance and a connection, like oh, like. There are other people that are thinking about the things that I'm thinking about and reading the things that I'm reading and interested in the things that I'm interested in. So, as I have been for the last eight years on an entrepreneurial journey, on a creative journey myself, um, your podcast and podcasts that you have been, you know, tangentially related to have been a real source of inspiration, both with the podcast themselves, but also, you know, you make mention of a book on the podcast and I go read that book. And then, you know, it's almost like uh, a book club or something uh, on some level. So um, it's been really interesting. And the reason why I chose to reach out to you is I feel like your work has really evolved, um, particularly uh, in the last like year or two as you've been talking a lot more about the artist's journey. And I think in the earlier days it was, Uh, More generalized, we're touching on some of this stuff, but I have been in my community of Tulsa, Oklahoma, working on a variety of projects and building things that are designed to support artists, channel resources to artists. And generally, from like a philosophical perspective, I have been trying to pull the levers of power in my city to put artists in charge and bring artists um, to the forefront. Uh, for reasons that I think you know, we both we both share. Uh, I, I think that artists drive culture, artists drive economic development, artists drive everything. And I have been in a city, uh, a community surrounded by talented artists that have had um, very little infrastructure or support for them to actually have a realistic pathway to do what they do, and so. As your work has evolved into championing artists and creating resources for artists, um, I'm really interested in talking to you about your, uh, I think you mentioned in a newsletter recently how you want to build a university for artists. It's just been this really interesting convergence where, uh, you know, I've been working with, with artists for almost eight years now while also like having this kind of like, subtle, um, undeniable attraction to your work. And then it's like, Oh shit. He's like, now he's literally talking about the same things that I'm talking about. And, and, you know, he's talking about building things on a much bigger scale. Whereas, um, a lot of my work has been, you know, at the hyper community level. Um, and at the same time, I've been feeling this pull internally that I still haven't fully figured out yet where I'm like, I think my work is bigger than Tulsa. I'm feeling like a need to expand beyond this community while still being connected to this community. And really, I'm in a season of trying to figure out exactly what that means. And so uh, I have done everything that I've done, built everything that I have built by following intuitive impulses. Like, I should email this person. I should call this person. Like, oh, I bumped into this person. Like, maybe we should go have coffee. And, uh, that's exactly what happened with you. I, it was, uh, on a night, probably a month ago, I was probably feeling particularly like, um, maybe confused or just a little bit of like looking for, um, what exactly my next step should be and something in me just, maybe I read your newsletter or something on that and something in me was just like, just email Eric, tell him who you are and see what happens. And uh, uh, yeah, and now here we are.
0: (laughs) I love it, man, yeah. I think it's interesting. A lot of people underestimate what a genuine email can do, because I think a lot of people assume that people that they like follow or pay attention to are a lot more busy than they think they are. And it's like, they are, but they Mm -hmm. still, read their emails, you know, like I think Aubrey's at a level where that motherfucker's not reading his emails, but like I'm still at yeah. least reading my emails. And I think something else that happens that also allows people to be trollish on Instagram and Twitter and things like that is it's like people still read their comments, you know, like Joe Rogan says he doesn't read his comments, but I think most people still read their comments, you know, and so like uh, the hate hits, but the love hits too the, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of things that you said that I want to pick up on, but I think the core thing is, is, um, what was your first taste of, um, the life and the feeling that can come from doing a artistic art or practice? Like what was your first art? So I, uh,
1: like many people was a very creative child. Um, and then I began to take on uh, cultural programming around going to college and picking a realistic profession. And uh, so, in my earliest days, I was acting in the school play. I was drawing pictures. Uh, I would—I remember like watching Disney movies and like drawing the characters and buying like those illustrative books. Um, I did competitive speech throughout middle school, uh, which is, you know, you like memorize a famous speech and present it or you memorize a poem and you uh, present it. Uh, So like public speaking and oration has kind of always been uh, there for me in college. I picked up the guitar. Music is definitely my first love uh, when it comes to the way that I appreciate art. Um, and so, yeah, all of those all of those things were always there. And then, um, somehow, when I went to college, I became a business person. And I, uh, you know, I, I also think that that was around 2003. There's a lot. Creative industry has exploded. I think in the last 20 years, and so it was hard for me to see a realistic pathway for. Living a creative life and um, the internet wasn't what it was. So you just kind of like followed the most pragmatic uh, pathway that was set before you. Um, so I majored in college in public relations uh, and graduated from college, got a job doing marketing. And, you know, that was kind of my 20s. So I kind of had the full amnesia experience of like starting out as like this super creative kid. Um, and then kind of ending up in that, um, in that period of like, just doing what you're supposed to do and, and kind of forgetting all of that.
0: Yeah. There's a couple of things there that I think is, uh, really interesting for me. And one is, um, like I feel passionate about helping people rewrite the like chasm story between being an artist and quote unquote running a business or being in business and even marketing itself. And I was watching, and I actually think that, uh, this podcast I'm about to mention is like a perfect podcast for anyone listening who feels like they have an inner chasm between what it means to be an artist and what it means to like run a business is Jordan Peterson recently interviewed Oliver Anthony. Are you familiar with Oliver Anthony? He's the musician that wrote Richmond north yep. of Richmond Okay so long story short, I think um, Oliver Anthony's song and its popularity like is a zeitgeist moment that emphasizes that a tremendous amount of our population believe that like money is inherently corrupt. And that their relationship to money is um, akin to like learned helplessness, the psychological phenomenon that Martin Siegelman discovered um, when he did his experiments on dogs. And if there's anyone interested in learning about learned helplessness, Google it. It's tough, but it's really significant and interesting, I think to have an understanding of what that means. And like, the alchemy that I've been going through the last month or so is it's like, and this is what Jordan Peterson offers Oliver Anthony very early in the podcast, because I think Jordan Peterson can see, you know, because he has the um, clinical insight, he can see that Oliver Anthony kind of has this story of art plus money equals corrupted art. And what Jordan Peterson was trying to like help him see is business itself can be a artistic craft. Learning how to create and like hiring people can be a creative craft. Determining how you shape your products and how you market your art can be a creative craft. And that Jordan Peterson says that he has seen lots of artists that he has been close to sabotage themselves because they have a unconscious story that to to consciously try to get their art out to more people would corrupt the art. And Jordan Peterson was just like, no. Like, art, people would die without good music, is one of the things that he said on the podcast, to Oliver Anthony, an artist who didn't have this wound would see as a part of their craft that they ought to do whatever is within their power to do to help as many people experience their art who want to voluntarily experience their art. And so I also see this kind of mythopoetic perfection almost that You know, you started out as an artist, you had your amnesia, but during your amnesia, you acquired technical skills. And now it seems very clearly that you've reemerged from the amnesia. And so I'd love to hear what is your current synthesis of your business background plus the artistic calling? Because from what I understand from your email, you empower artists in a way that um, really inspires me.
1: Uh, Thank you very much. I so I read uh, the Almanac of Naval at your recommendation, and one of the things that he says in that book is there's no skill called business. Like it's this idea of like building things that that feels like we kind of create the separation where like business is over here and art is over here. What I would say right now is that I'm a storyteller. And that everything that I do from a business perspective is at the most basic level storytelling. So, for example, uh, I'll talk about a, a couple of the kind of like major projects that I've done in my in my town. Um, there is an incredible so in Tulsa. Uh, a lot of people listening might know that a um, hundred years ago there was an event here called the Tulsa Race Massacre. Uh, where uh, it's the worst incident of racial violence in American history happened in our city. And when I, I had moved away from Tulsa for a while and came back in 2016 with the intention of, I kind of always wanted to be an artist manager working in the music industry. And so when I moved back in 2016, um, I met some of these hip hop artists that were utilizing the history of our city in their music as a mechanism for healing and, um, artistic expression and the evolution and growth and development of our city. And in this situation, um, and really throughout the, a lot of the artists that I work with, I don't see that money wound in, in the sense of like the people that I'm working with want to be successful. They want money but there is a frustration and a chasm around like, how do I get more people to see my work? How do I, it feel, it can feel in a city like Tulsa, uh, particularly in hip hop, which is primarily like in New York and LA um, and Houston and Atlanta, like who cares about the Tulsa hip hop scene? And like, we're on this Island, just like waiting for someone to notice, you know, what's going on here. And uh, you know, so I, there's also a, Um, a very significant philanthropic community in Tulsa and people that have money and power that really want Tulsa to be the next Austin or the next whatever. And so they're investing a lot of resources in making Tulsa into that kind of a place. Uh, And so where I came in is that I developed relationships with the hip-hop artists in our city and I began to help them tell their personal story, building personal brands for those artists, you know things like writing their bios and their websites and helping create strategy around um, releasing music and you know building businesses. So one of the artists that I work with created a music festival and so I began helping him with that. And then I also developed relationships with the philanthropists in our city that want Tulsa to be cool and want people to move here. And I began telling stories to both sides, really. I first had to help the philanthropists understand the impact and the value of the real healing work that our hip-hop scene was doing to um, to kind of, um, in, in some way, begin to move past the wound that hit our city 100 years ago. But that also... What's more popular in American culture than hip-hop? And if you want people to move to Tulsa, like invest in our hip-hop artists, right? At the same time, I had to tell a story to the artists that said, hey, like there's this thing called nonprofit organizations, and like believe it or not, they just give out money for things that they feel are worthy causes. And so I kind of made myself a bridge between those two things. And it was all storytelling, right? And so that led to a, uh, a project called Fire in Little Africa that was released uh, in commemoration of the 100-year anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre. A lot of really almost miraculous and special things happened throughout the course of that project. So we got funded by the local philanthropists. They you know, have connections to uh, the music industry, which led to a record deal with Motown. Uh, which led to uh, you know getting a top tier music publicist and articles and tons of major publications. And we were able to shine a light on the Tulsa hip hop scene and release this really beautiful project in 2021. So that's business, right? But like everything that I did throughout the course of that was really just storytelling and fundamentally just like, Helping this group of people understand what this group of people is doing and creating alignment of those interests uh, to create outcomes that everybody can hopefully uh, feel good about. So I think that um, that's what marketing is. That's what any kind of building a business like there's a lot that goes into it in terms of like, you know, the other side of business is of course, like finance and, you know, making the nuts and the bolts of the thing work, uh, and like kind of the operational aspects. But, uh, I think that when it comes to raising capital and building traction and helping people understand what you're doing, it's a function of storytelling. And that's, that's creativity, obviously.
0: One of the things that jumps out from the story that you're telling is, um, Jamie wheel has a quote that I'm pretty sure he got from someone else. uh, and uh it's kind of a meta quote now, but uh history does not repeat itself, but it rhymes. And one of the core kind of patterns that helped create the Renaissance that happened in Florence was a relationship between the um wealthy and the artistic craftsmen. And it was the wealthy that would become patrons of the artists that would then allow the artists to create things that they couldn't have done if they had to fund on their own that started to create a cultural magnet to Florence that then allowed it to become this kind of like new hub for, you know, the next wave of the Western culture, ocean, zeitgeist thing. And, you know, not to put pressure on Tulsa for having to become the next Florence, but this is actually... One of the things that I feel I'm trying to, like, create connective tissue to, which is that some people's dharma is going to be to be excellent at the things that we call business. And some people's dharma is going to be called to be excellent at the things that we call, you know, the arts. But like you said earlier, that line is kind of a misunderstanding. Misunderstanding. Because really, business is an art. It's just a different type of art. But anyways, there's going to be some people whose dharma is going to yield a maximum attraction of financial resources. And then there's going to be some people who what they're attracting is like big, crazy ideas from the zeitgeist that if they, you know, put into a song, 50 million people watch over the course of three weeks. And those are people like Oliver Anthony. I think... Without getting too um, intense, I think one of the things that will need to be done to give us a chance to make it through the next 150 years that look like it's going to be tremendously hard unless there's some, unless we have some really good luck, but let's just prepare as if we won't have great luck, is we're going to need almost like a new renaissance. And I think it's going to, it's going to have to happen in many, many places. But I just wanted to like call that out that what you're doing rhymes with the pattern of something that was required in Florence for the first Renaissance to happen. And I think the other, of course, it's nuance, but the other big ingredient that allowed the Renaissance to start was that I forget the details, but somehow. Um, Florence and that area got access to the knowledge of the Greeks that had been lost for hundreds of years because of the burning of Alexandria and either some site got excavated or something got translated where they started to be able to get back to that, like really pristine Greek philosophic wisdom. And I think the modern rhyming version of that is the explosion of the internet is like we've excavated these ancient sites that have this ancient wisdom, because now through the internet, if you have even a little bit of competence and a little bit of a a ability to stay focused, you can find Plato and Aristotle and the Stoics and the ancient Egyptians and Thoth and all these things. And so I think I think the milieu in our culture is ripe for a new renaissance. And I actually think that what you're doing without even realizing it is the beginning of what I personally would like to see happen much more. And one of the things that I'm like, what my vision for this university is, is it's to empower artists to not um, subconsciously condemn themselves to not being able to operate in the world with any type of power or influence because it's like, bro, you can be both.
1: Yeah. I think that where the money and business stuff gets messy is around when the art becomes influenced too heavily on what's going to make money. Right. And that can be a, that can be a delicate, difficult balance for artists to to follow, right? Because if you're an artist that doesn't have much money, that's still working at the call center or doing whatever it is that you're doing, and you have talent and you know you you are actively creating every day and you know, you still can't crack a thousand listens on your song it can become very easy to get in the mindset of like, well, how can I create something that that people would like? Or, you know, uh, even in, in, in my case, like uh, the thing that I did after Fire in Little Africa was I started to build a nonprofit organization, a 501c3 called Tulsa Creative Engine, which started with this really... And actually, like, I, I didn't think about... Or I, I'd like to dig more into the Florence example. But there are... I definitely like got myself into the mindset of like, we can change the world by changing Tulsa, right? And, and that like any city in the world could theoretically be a major cultural hub. It just takes like, you know, you have to have the talented artists there and they have to have resources. You have to put that signal out. So I am a very idealistic person that does believe that anything is possible, which can be... Um, uh, that can be really exciting, but can also feel heavy if you start to feel like you know it's on you to like transform your city. But the thing that started to happen as I was continuing to work with philanthropy is, I feel that I got disconnected from my original intention in doing this work, which is to like empower artists and basically give them the keys to the city. And I found myself starting to think about, how can we give the philanthropists what they want? Right. So it's like, I think money is good and we, we all want to make money, but there is like a lot to navigate around. Like, especially when you are, um, you know, not, uh, living as abundantly as you would ideally want to, it can be really attractive to start to do what the money wants you to do. Right. And that is a, I, I think that's like what happens with a lot of mainstream artists, the artists that like you love their first three albums and then they get the big record deal and then they fall off. It's like, you know, the, the money can start to impact the art. And I think that um, the other thing with business is that artists, a lot of artists are realizing that they don't need like, like, like traditionally in the music industry, like, again, like, like a record label, the middleman, right. It's kind of like an inherently exploitive model, right? Like it's, it's someone saying like, we're going to give you a hundred thousand dollars. Now we own all your music. We're going to market it, sell it. And then like the artist ends up, you know, bankrupt even though they have a hit song. Right. And I think that, um, that is the piece where a lot of that kind of like complicated relationship between business and money and artists and the music industry started. Is like you had all these people that like in today's landscape, like if you record an album and you get millions of streams, because like, it's like, if you're Oliver Anthony, right? Like he doesn't need a record label. He doesn't, I mean, he maybe need, needs a manager to like help him, you know, answer emails and strategize and things like that. It's good to have a team that, you know, if you're building a big creative brand. And so I think that we're kind of like living in like the death of the middleman, right. Where like, you know, you have artists that um, start to get that traction and then they don't need any of this kind of like existing infrastructure. Um, Or you have artists that like, haven't, you know, blown up in that way. And they, they need it more, but then it's like, you can't build a business around artists that aren't making money, right? So it, it it's a really interesting time. And that's kind of like what I'm in the process of navigating right now. It's I'm like, in theory, I want to build a record label. In theory, I want to be an artist manager. But at the same time, like... Um, that is kind of like a complicated thing to a lot of artists. And so I think everyone is kind of trying to figure out, um, the best way to create a new model that, um, that feels good and fair to everyone involved. Um, so yeah. that everyone can, everyone can share in the, and the, and the wins.
0: Yeah. So there's a few things here. Um, the first is that I think to your point about it's, it, it gets very nuanced when um, the money can start to influence what type of art is created through the artists. And I think something that's just important to know explicitly is that there's a version of capitalism that at its essence, it's... Just reciprocity. It's reciprocity with some type of <laughs> symbol to mediate the feeling that you feel you owe someone because they've done something good for you. That reciprocity is a core human nature that if you try to create any economic game that doesn't align with reciprocity, you will have to enforce it with force. And that's why communism at its essence, of course, there's a bunch of reasons why it doesn't work, but it grates against our innate feeling of reciprocity. Now, that's at like the far left end of the best interpretation of playing the game of capitalism. At the far right end, the worst way to play the game of capitalism is what happens when a company goes public, which is that, We have a law that dictates that if you are a publicly traded company, the CEO is legally bound to the board members to prove that every choice they have made was made to maximize profit. That kills the world. That kills art. When you are legally required to maximize profit, I think there's a vast land between these two poles of like, you feel good when you do something good for someone and they want to do something good for you back. And then this far other pole where it's like, eat the fucking world so that our you know investments can go up. And I think that there's a place in this vast middle area where it's, you know, like, I understand that if I play the game of money I will be able to make art and not make myself sick, not make myself insane, and not worry everybody around me. And I can do it in a way where it does not erode my integrity with my art. And then that's never been more available because of this new frontier that is here that we tend not to notice because it's so in our face, but it's the internet. So Naval Ravikant, and deeply recommend anyone listening who is an artist, who has any type of resistance around being wealthy, check out Naval Ravikant's book, The Almanac of Naval. And one of the things that he talks about is there is a type of technology that if you create it, it will exponentially generate wealth for you for the rest of your life. And that this was basically impossible before the rise of the internet. So an example would be, if you wanted to have something that exponentially grows before the internet, you would have to create like a vast industrial type of like factory that like, you know almost enslaves people to like it was really hard. But with the rise of the internet, if you write a single line of code that works, Once and that the output of that code brings value to other people for the rest of your life, as long as you have like a patent on that code, wealth will be brought back to you. And you can look at all these companies that, you know, if you write the right code, it will serve you and generate wealth for you for the rest of your life. Music can be like that, you know, in the rise of the internet, courses or something that's like that, Any, any type of blog post that you ever make, whatever. What he offers is focus on creating the things that if you create it well once, it continues to help you for the rest of your life. And that this new world that we're in, if you get just one of those things right, the 3D strain of being an artist can dramatically, dramatically reduce so that you can give more of your energy to making art. And the other Part of this is it's like, you know, a lot of us have wounds around money, and we think that with money we can reach a place where it's like it's basically unconsciously, archetypically, our Eden. Where like, if I just make a million dollars, unconsciously, I believe I'm gonna be an Eden, but you won't. Most people are probably aware of the studies that show that happiness and life satisfaction. Rises with income up to the point of about 80,000 a year. And then beyond that point, there is no correlation between life satisfaction and your income. You know, and the idea is there's a certain level of income that if you don't have basic needs, can't be met in a way that feels safe and that can really erode your sense of safety. But beyond that point, it's not going to help you with your like happiness. And that we live in a time now where anyone who is listening to this has the opportunity through making a couple, like just one or two of these exponential type of technologies that, you know, they worked on it for a year and then they created it. They could get to that threshold where they're no longer required to make money to, or to, to make more money to produce the art that is in them to make. The other thing to feel into is I think there's something that's happening in our culture because of social media where we are like, rapidly developing our intuition and being able to detect if someone is genuine. Because we're just getting thousands of hours of watching people's faces right in front of us that people before the internet, you just didn't get. And we can feel, even if we don't even if we can't tell that we can feel. We can feel when someone is not being genuine. And when it comes to creating art, when there's that t- dissonance between like, oh, that person wrote that song. That song tends to resonate with dramatically more people. Where if like you listen to a Katy Perry song, you can almost feel that there's no Katy Perry there. You know, it's just, it's, it's this other entity that's moving through her, and it's almost like, you know, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. But um, I guess like one of the things I just want to offer to people listening is, if you approach your art like it is a lifelong craft, and you embrace the fact that like, okay, I've I'm, I've put out 20 songs on Spotify, none of them have gotten over a thousand views. How long have I been doing this? Four years? Okay, good. I've got six more years to go until I should even begin to expect that people will listen to me. You know, and I think there's this, it's at least attractive to me, but this like craftsman-like orientation to my art in that, like again, in, in the Renaissance times, people would work directly with a master for years. You know, and it was between like five to 15 years of like working with a master until you created your masterpiece, which was you created a part of a masterwork of the master that you worked under. And I think that there's something missing currently in our culture for artists um, that mimic what the guilds did back in the, in the Renaissance times. And that's one of the things that I'm also interested in trying to like help feed. Is like, what would it look like if like Tulsa and Austin and L.A. and Portland had guilds? You know, had like guilds for different type of artistic crafts. Like, what if there was a storytelling guild, and there was like a like um, philanthropy guild, and then there was like the quote unquote arts guild? So. Uh, I've been rambling for almost like 10 minutes. So I would love yeah. to hear what's going on you. <laughs> uh, you know,
1: I think that, I guess what's coming up right now as you start to talk about like the guilds, I think like the other kind of challenge that I've been wrestling with in terms of like building things, building businesses, building organizations is like, there is something that is like really pure, like these things, like like what you just laid out there with the guilds. Like it starts with this like really pure idea of like organization and structure and creating systems and moving towards this kind of beautiful intention. And I think that what happens is institutions become institutional and unhealed people are in positions it it doesn't take much uh or it takes it takes really only one person that is um out of alignment with the overall mission to kind of obstruct the entire thing and so i've been wrestling with the challenge of like how do you build things in a way that that feel really pure and that accomplish the end goal but like is there even a way to avoid the pitfalls of the institutionalization of these things? And, uh, if so, how, how can that happen? And I think even with regards to, you know, the work of musicians, I think like, I have been thinking a lot about like, um, like like we have Spotify and we have YouTube and we have Instagram and we have all these platforms that are set up. So if you were like, I want to drop an album, it's like, okay, obviously like you will start to build a platform on social media and you will uh, put your music out on Spotify. And then like, yeah, there's a level at which you have to be patient and just like let things unfold in the way that they're going to unfold. But I think that with a lot of the artists and, and music right now, the feeling is like, these systems feel like shouting into the void. These systems feel like, like like the question, you know, that I even wrestle with is like, is any of this like the best use of our time and energy? Like if if like, um, again, not to get uh, too deep into like that finite game mindset of like, this next album is the one that's going to like, you know, when, and then, you know, everything will change. But at the same time, there is that idea of like, is there something better than like, like, so for example, like one of the things that I'm doing right now for artists in Tulsa is investing in video content um, because I feel that we have a lot of talent. There are a lot of like really amazing events that happen here and everyone's like uploading music on Spotify it's not always connecting. Some artists are are building more followings than others, but there are some like really brilliant artists that just haven't like connected. And so I had this idea of like I will invest in video content, and you know we will put that. I will create a platform for this video content, and it'll kind of be like a hub for not just Oklahoma, but you know any kind of like overlooked or uh, underestimated artists, like wherever they may happen to be in the world. And that's a really beautiful thing, and I'm having fun doing it. That's like a creative outlet for me. That's also in service to the artist. But then I have days where I'm like, should I just be feeding the content machine? Like it's it's like, and, and so that's where it goes to like the desire to somehow transcend this whole system. Um, or again, build something new that feels more generative and reciprocal to everyone involved. Um, but that's a big undertaking, right? That, that's slaying, you know, pretty big dragons of, you know, the god of Spotify, the god yeah. of YouTube, the god of whatever. And, um, and so, yeah, it, it does come back to, I think, both for the artists that are making the music, Uh, creating the content and for the people that are trying to help them. It's like, is this the best use of our energy? Right. And if not, then what is a better use of our energy?
0: Yeah. um, One of the things that popped up for me is uh, if you think about your business in 2023 as the cathedral to, your art is like a spirit and so you could think of it like akin to like you know the holy spirit and the cathedrals were built on one level as a container for the you know absolute divine to differentiate it from the rest of life and for it to be a place that you could go into to connect to that spirit the stonemasons Of the cathedrals, like they could have paused on trying to create the cathedral because one of them had an intuition that they could one day invent steel, even though they didn't have steel yet or whatever, or that they could invent, you know, fucking cranes that would do robotics. And so instead of him learning how to use the tools of his time, he was like, I'm not going to build. I'm going to wait until the robotics come. Mm -hmm. Then he wouldn't have helped create the cathedral of his time. And I feel like for artists now, the invitation is like, you know, have the audacity to believe that you can change the world, but then also be humble enough to fucking learn to use the tools that you have in your time so you can at least start to build as opposed to waiting for some, you know, potential invention or some creation that will make it all easier. And you could do both. You could lay brick for four hours a day and then, you know, go off into your alchemical cave and think about what the future could be. And so, like, for people listening, it's like Spotify, YouTube, Instagram, an email list, whatever. Those are some of the the tools of our time if you want to start to build your cathedral to your spirit in the dimensional space that is the internet where you know if you lay one brick right a thousand bricks might come over the next year just they just grow out of that brick like it's a different game and that if you play the digital game well enough it can change the 3D world where you know it it is not impossible that you could could create things on the internet that yield you a billion dollars, that then could yield you to employ actual stoneworkers to create X, Y, and Z. But, you know, that's a, um, it's a symbolic example. So I just want to offer that to people listening. And um, just as like a playful invitation to you, is it's like, um, do what feels right, but then, you know, leave 10% of your weekly energy and like, bu- and your budget to, exp- to experiment with creating things specifically to optimize, you know, because like that's the thing that doesn't feel good. Give 10% of your weekly energy to experimenting. Like, okay, a thought experiment for people would be if you knew that you could create the next piece of content that would go absolutely viral, that would bring everyone's eyeballs to you? Would you do it? And I think if people are being honest, almost everyone would say yes. Or artists who have something that they genuinely know when people interact with it and it improves their lives. But most artists will say something like, I don't want to try to make things to optimize for performance because it equals you know, the the corrosion of my art. Before you say that you don't want to do it, prove that you can do it. You know, it would be like if you had a friend that you know can't swim and instead of them learning how to swim, there's like, oh, I don't like swimming. You're like, motherfucker, you don't know how to swim. So for artists who... um as almost like a moral standpoint, choose to not play the game of the algorithms. You know, the invitation is like, run the experiment once a week with one piece of content where it's like, I'm going to make something, like obviously don't lie, but like I'm going to make something that is true. And I'm going to try to optimize for everything that I believe I know that will do well. And then just see, you know, because like (laughs) most people just don't know. And I think most people mm-hmm. if they if they rub the genie bottle and the genie was like, "You could be authentic and get a hundred million people to see your best piece of art over the next month, do you want that? They would say yes, and that's what happens if you go viral,
1: yeah, a hundred percent I think that's I think that's really well said um, I think the other maybe this is a good transitional point because I think the other thing that I've been thinking about and feeling into is my own creative journey. Um, Not that any of the things that I have built and the businesses and the sort of infrastructure side of things like that's part of me too. But I've had this over the last, it's been very loud over the last year. um, But it's also something that I've been connected to lifelong is like, I should be writing like I'm a, I have a journalism degree. I, my college experience was a lot of like the first act of a screenplay. Right. And one of the things that I realized that I've been doing is certainly following my Dharma in terms of like the hip hop project, the nonprofit organization. These are things that like are absolutely like core to, you know, things I wanted to put into the world. And at the same time, I was hiding behind those projects, right? Like, yeah. it was like the, the hip hop project wasn't Chris, you know? I, I if anything, de emphasized my role in that project because of the nature of it and because everything is about shining a light on these particular artists. And then with the nonprofit, it was telling a story about the creative community, this like entity, right? It wasn't like invest in me. And so, in a lot of ways as much as those were like big projects that you know had a high profile it wasn't really like vulnerable for me to create those things because it wasn't me putting my soul on display in like the most like explicit way right even like doing a podcast like this i've done a few other podcasts but they haven't been a deep exploration into like who I am and what my work, you know what I mean? And that has been the whisper that I've been working with uh, over the last year or so. It's like, not instead of everything that I'm doing in the music industry, but in addition to like, I should have a creative project where I'm not the producer, you know, where I'm not the conductor of the orchestra or the man behind the curtain, but like. It's actually like my thing, my soul, my ideas. Like by Chris Davis out here in the world, and that also feels, um, you know, it feels like the right kind of scary and exciting. And and so I've been working with like, how do I divide my energy into like? On one hand, I'm a big picture person. I like to build big things. I like to take big swings, and I want to help as many people as possible, particularly in my hometown, in my community. And like, what does it look like for me to put myself out there a little bit more? And, and how can you do that in a way that doesn't just like feed ego and doesn't just like, you know, create a monument to self, um, but is actually like also, you know, in service to the common good.
0: This is juicy. This is great. Uh, One of the things that I think is just a good, like, um, cognitive razor for people to use to, um, uh, as an artist, if you're going to do business with anybody else, when it comes to your art, you can use this razor. Uh, does this person that I'm going to do business with, are they an artist? Like, do they actively art? And if they don't, they're either going to exploit me because they don't, because they're just completely um, disconnected from their art, or two, they're probably going to overgive to me because they're an artist in denial right now. Do you know what I mean? And um, the best case scenario, if you make a deal, like a business deal with the denied artist, is that they're going to wake up one day. You know, and realize, oh shit, I've been um I've been trying to get as close to my art as I can without actually doing my art. And the thing is, man, almost everyone listening to this is gonna resonate with this. Because almost anyone who's listening to this, they've heard me beat the drum long enough. They know that they're an artist. But most people who know that they're an artist know that they're also not arting. Every day, and what I mean, because of course you can make the philosophical argument that like every act that you do is artistic, and I've made that argument. But each of us know, in the privacy of our heart, like what's a craft that our soul wants us to seek mastery at, and for you it's clearly writing. You've already made that clear, and one of the reasons why it's clear is because you talked about, you know, uh, the you've written the first act of the screenplay, you know. So, and you're a storyteller, so the, the invitation that I would offer, and you know, I'm offering this to everyone through offering it to you, which is, and like my core practice that has helped me navigate basically every season of my life for the last 12 years, is the first hour of the day I am journaling just to kind of get myself clear, and then I'm reading or ingesting almost always through reading because it feels like i have an intimacy with myself through reading of something that directly feeds my craft and then i write which is me actually doing my craft and so for other people it might be like you journal you listen to some music and then you play the guitar but it's like that core Like I feed my soul first thing before the chaos and the urgency of the modern world start to, you know, get me on emails and meetings and phone calls and text messages. And so for you, it's start writing and like go find a couple of your favorite screenwriters and like get their books, you know, like have them almost as like, like holy texts, that like before you start to write, you, you can just go read like five to 10 pages of someone that you admire talking about how they thought they too were a piece of shit and that anything that they wrote was shit. And you're like, okay, it's not just me. And then you write for like 20 minutes at first, you know, and just like working out, you can start to hone this practice until you get to the point where there's something about our cognition where the amount of deep work that we can do in a day is about four hours. So it's like that's the max capacity per day that our biology seems to be able to do like deep work. So the um, invitation would be almost like you're training in the gym, you start as small as you need to start to start today and set a fucking timer, you know, and if you wanna get, if this resonates with you, you could track in a spreadsheet each day, How long was I on task? I love tracking because we bullshit ourselves, but a lot of the -hmm. spiritual people that I'm around really don't like tracking. And it's a constant (laughs) point of contention. But, and then um, you start that practice and as soon as you feel ready to go to the next level, the next level is now you create a rhythm where you share something from what you've been doing. You know, so like say you just start to do the craft for a month, and then after a month, it's like, okay, I'm entering to the next level of this, which is at the end of each week, I'm going to share either an article or a newsletter, or but I'm sharing my my craft. Cause that's gonna bring up all sorts of things. Like, dude, I know some fucking incredible artists who like just haven't released or sh- or shared any of their art for years and it's just like that that film of the fear of judgment you know can just like let people like slowly suffocate their artistic soul and it's like as soon as you can start to create a cadence where you just hop over that fence and then once you start hopping over that fence, you can start to play around with what is it that you share, and you can start to, oh my God, start to learn what do what does well on the platforms. Because here's, I love this reframe from Mr. Beast, who is arguably the greatest uh, interpreter of what the collective consciousness wants that's ever lived. You know, like I think you can make the, the argument that he is, he is a intuitive wisdom about what the collective unconscious wants via content. Uh, one of the things that he says is stop saying algorithm. Just say audience. The audience wants X. The audience doesn't like that. You know, and, and like what a lot of creators will allow themselves to do is instead of interpreting that, it as, oh, the audience didn't care. They'll say, I'm not trying to do whatever the algorithm is asking me to do. Now, of course, it's not all one or the other, but I think it's a really nice reframe of like a true artist. On some level, it's like, okay, I don't care if the audience doesn't like this. I'm still doing this. But you can also listen to the audience, you know, and oh, the audience likes this thing. And uh, don't assu- like catch yourself if you're assuming that the audience is d- dumber than you. And they're like, oh, th- th- they're going to like the really insane thumbnail on the YouTube video where it says, do this and change your life. You know? It's like, yeah, that might get more clicks. But if you look deeper at the analytics, that probably has a worse watch time and people leave it more quickly and they, you don't get as much engagement. And so YouTube reads it as like a fake call. So there's nuance to that. But to bring it back, start the practice, raise the stakes to sharing and tag me in the first thing that you share. This is what I tell all my friends. You know, <laughs> Fucking tag me. Like, let me see it and then start to play with curating what it is that you share. And then this is beyond the scope of this conversation, but like what I want to help people learn how to do is once you get that first part, right, where you're working on your craft every day and you've gotten over the fear of sharing, you can then start to get really creative with your life where it's like, okay. I want to run the experiment of doing breath work every day at dawn for a month. And then I'm just going to use my craft to tell the story of that experiment. And then I'm going to share that experiment once it's done with the world. You start to get into the habit of creating cool experiments to grow yourself. You'll eventually stumble upon a transformation. And once you stumble upon a transformation, you then get the opportunity to go to the next stage, which is turn your transformation into, scary word, a product that you then charge people to get access to. And the psychology here is one, you deserve to be able to make money. You aren't a bad person if you make money. But two, if you have a transformation like... Let's say you finally figured out how to eat clean for a year and you've been trying your whole fucking life, but you finally figured it out. You have your version of a transformation that you've wanted your whole life. Other people want that transformation. And if you've been cultivating the habit of making it public, the cool things that you do, you will have attracted some people who like the way you do shit. And it's not that you're the only person ever who knows how to eat clean. They like how you see the world and they would want to know how you did it. You share how you do it. And the reason you charge for it is people have a psychological resistance to doing things they already know how to do to change themselves. If you offer them a transformation for free that creates no uncomfies in them To obtain the info, if the the discomfort of change is greater than zero, which it obviously will be, they're not going to do it. And anyone here who is listening who has ever given life changing advice to a person who wanted it, and it happened for free, and you guys were just hanging out and talking, 99 out of 100 times, they don't make a change. The thing that makes people uncomfortable about money is that especially when it comes to helping people transform, making them pay an amount that creates greater discomfort than the discomfort of currently trying to change the habit radically increases the chances of them at least fucking trying to do something differently, to get the outcome that you are offering them. And you know what makes it even more potent? Tell a good story. Actually mark it actually fucking hype them up and convince them and i think the thing like most people have this wound where they assume if someone is going to market something and it sounds awesome it has to be a lie and it's like i think that's a carryover of the way the game was created before the rise of the internet where companies could get away with, at least for a certain amount of time, just lying. But it's like now with the internet, especially if the thing that you offer the transformation through is your brand, if, if you're a piece of shit and your shit doesn't work, you aren't going to survive because there's a comment section and there's forums and there's Google. And it's like people have to be more legit than they used to be especially if you just take a little bit of care, you know, of like what you choose to do. So again, I've been talking for like 15 minutes, but I think (laughs) that that is what I would invite you to feel into if you're ready to start to listen to the whisper that's asking you like, Hey, do your thing.
1: Yeah. So, uh, a a lot coming up. I want to go back in time a little bit because I think what I want to say is like what I've learned is that um, like I feel on some level I've done exactly what you're saying because I spent my 20s I did the corporate job working in marketing making lots of money and like had all the things that culture told me that I was supposed to have but I wasn't happy right and so I began examining like what does it Like, what do I want out of life? Like, what would make me happy? And I wasn't yet at the point of, like, embracing myself as an artist. And so I basically arrived at the conclusion that around my 30th birthday, that the most important thing to me is my freedom. And so I wanted to orient my life around freedom. And so I did very similar practices to what you're describing here in terms of like where I'm at on my current journey. And it's like deeper and deeper layers of like the same thing. And I think that something that I've learned that I was maybe naive about and something I think I mentioned to you in my first email is like, I love Joseph Campbell. I love the hero's journey. That's been like the biggest, most inspiring, impactful thing that I've ever discovered And I foolishly thought that that was a one-time thing. It's like, okay, like you leave the ordinary world, you put yourself out there like I did it, right? And I thought quitting my corporate job around my 30th birthday was the big moment. And, And I had to push through a lot of fear to do that. And I had to do a lot of deep inner work to get to the point of like, You know, realizing that I just wanted to be free and that I needed to be an entrepreneur. My first business that I started was a gourmet popsicle company because I was able to start that company for $5,000. It felt like it was going to spread joy in the community. And like, it just, for whatever reason, that felt like the most natural thing for me to do at that time. Then, like, but I, I knew that like I wasn't like passionate about popsicles, I was passionate about like freedom and having a business. But I was doing like daily practice. I was still like reading a ton of, you know, a lot of different spiritual uh, and like entrepreneurial like wisdom. Uh, and the while I was doing that uh, is when I started building relationships with the hip hop artist, right? And around that time, I read The Artist Way. I can't remember if I heard about Artist's Way from you or from someone else, but um, I had this epiphany of like, oh shit, like I'm a fucking shadow artist. Like I am like, <laughs> just like surrounded by all these like amazing talented hip hop artists and like it did feel like they were missing something that I was like uniquely able to bring to the table which felt good and that felt like that gave me a lot of purpose and I did cultivate a lot of habit change and you know daily practices to kind of like hone in on like okay like I'm an artist manager now right and but then it's like that story kind of like starts to evolve and you're like well like maybe I'm not like an artist manager maybe I'm more like an artist partner and I'm actually contributing creatively and then so each thing that I've built I've done what you're describing on some level as I've gotten like closer and closer to like the heart of of me and like what I really want to do and it's like I had to do popsicles first. Then I had to like do this hip hop project. Then I had to do this nonprofit. Then I had to build my new company. It's called Pop House. And like, now I'm like thinking about like, in to use the same words as you, I've been like, no, like I need a craft. Like I need something like, and that's not, again, that's not instead of what I'm building. I love what I'm building and I love the work I'm doing with musicians. And I don't, I don't want to, Let go of that because I think that's part of what I'm here to do as well. But I am in a state of, like, you know, I want to have a craft that is not about me organizing groups of people and getting the funding and building the thing and, like, you know, hoping it works out for everyone, but like having a craft that I'm doing for me. um, And, like, right now, yeah and and actually like this year I'm happy to say like I have cultivated that more than I have probably in the last 10 years combined uh, and I've written, you know, 50 pages of a new screenplay. I will say that I haven't written anything in the last 2 months, but I've been more focused on building this other new thing that I'm building and I think that every creative uh can kind of identify with like, you know, you you wake up and work on the thing that you're inspired to wake up and work on and and Sometimes that can be a distraction from the work that maybe you like, quote unquote, really need to be doing. But sometimes it's just like, this is what's the most interesting and, you know, alive for me right now. And like, I met this person and we can do this video project with these artists. And it's like, it just, your priorities can shift and change um, depending on the day or the season or whatever. But I know that I'm entering, because I made a commitment to myself and I'm I'm pretty good about um, keeping promises that I make to myself that I would finish a screenplay by the end of 2023. And I'm like a third, a little over a third of the way through a screenplay. And I've got, you know, pretty much quarter four here to actually uh, make good on that promise. But I think what I will pull out of what you just said is like, I, I want to be better about, reserving that sacred time first thing in the morning to hone the craft, I tend to be kind of like all or nothing. Like, you know, so like whenever I wrote those 50 pages of screenplay earlier this year, it's like for three weeks, I was like full screenplay mode, right? And I didn't think about anything else. I wasn't meeting with anyone about anything else. I was like fully doing that thing. And then the pendulum swung the other direction. And I'm like fully building my record label and fully working with musicians on and helping them. And I think that I need to find more balance uh, and the ability to dabble a little bit more and in, in kind of like work on different things uh, concurrently. Um, but but certainly uh, the way that I know that writing and finishing the screenplay, one is because I've never finished a screenplay before. Yeah. And I do want to share, I, I don't have particular resistance to sharing my work in fact like i'm it's almost like that's it's easier for me to be like hey i wrote like 10 pages of a screenplay like hey look at this you know versus like finishing the fucking story and and just like having that as like a completed project just so that i can just know that i did it and just feel the fulfillment of like making a commitment to myself and following through on it. Um, but yeah, that's, that's definitely, uh, that's definitely I think going to be a big part of, of the next few months.
0: Have you heard of the book by Stephen Pressfield? It's called the artist's journey.
1: Yeah. So I've been on a big Pressfield kick, uh, lately. I, I primarily, um, primarily have listened to his works, but so I've, I've I've listened to the War of Art probably five times. And then I think again at your recommendation, I think you posted um Turning Crow. And then he wrote one that is is the artist journey is not the hero's journey one. Yeah. So yeah. So that's the that's the one that I haven't
0: read yet. Beautiful. Yeah. So the idea that he talks about, which the moment I read it, I was like, duh, this is genius. Is Everyone has one hero's journey. But what the hero journey does is it wakes you up to what happens after you complete your hero's journey is you realize that you're an artist. In whatever way, everyone has an artistic thing that wants to come through them. And the hero's journey is basically going through the transformation required to start to share yourself with your community. After that, we have a infinite cycles of going through different artistic journeys and every type of artistic project is its own artistic journey. That is like a hero's journey, but for that specific project. And Mm. he does a great job of just describing many layers of that. But the essence is like, I don't know if he says it explicitly, but what I took away from it is how many rotations can you get through in your life? Let's go. You know, because it's just <laughs> each one has its own thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh no, like that's that's definitely um that definitely resonates and, and I definitely will uh will revisit that book. But I think that the thing that is um less talked about is like each hero's journey. It's like a birth. It's like it's like a it, it, it's exhausting on some level, and so I think it can feel um, like at the end. Like, and, and I'm 38 years old now, so I've I've been through multiple cycles of like building a business and then like shutting it down or starting a project and then it comes out. And so i I'm on you know how many iterations. And it's like, every time you come to the end of that cycle, it's just like, there's almost like a hangover. You're just like, damn, like I did it, you know, and, um, and you have to psych your, you have to, you have to find that energy again, sometimes to tap back into, particularly when, you know, it can be hard, um, Like a lot of us have like a an idea of like how impactful or successful we want that cycle or that project to be. And so, you know, if it doesn't meet your highest ideal of like what was possible for that project, it can feel even more difficult to get yourself into the energetic space that you need to be in to actually pour yourself fully into a new project. And that's something that I experienced on that hip hop project where we had the Motown deal and like absolutely like did everything, you know, um, did something on the magnitude that had never happened in Tulsa before. And everybody just had to like go back to their jobs after it was out. Like nobody, you know, it didn't transform the city overnight, like in our most idealistic way we wanted it to. and there's so you have like disappointment there's like some grief there's like all the things that were there before you started the project in some cases are still there and i think that's kind of the um i i've been feeling over the last you know couple of months more creatively inspired than i did in january because in january i felt very much worn out from like my last journey of building the 501c3 and just like kind of back in that wasteland of like, okay, well, like now what, I could do this or I could do that. Um, and yeah, I think that providing, um, I think people like you are providing and, and particularly with the, the writers and, and uh, works that you are uh, shining a spotlight on and including your own work, the art of Dharma, it can help be a bridge to get artists from like one journey to the next. And I think that um, there is a naivete that can only be healed by like getting older and going through like most more and more journeys. Cause like, you know, a lot of the artists I work with right now are like 21 years old. Like they're on their first journey. Like, and so it's very easy for them to get in that like, my next album's gonna like blow up, and I'm gonna like take the music industry by storm and and you have to get a little bit older and go through more iterations and more cycles to start to see that um, it, it it always that process is always gonna start back over again. and and um, you have to. Cultivate it and cultivate the conditions for creativity in a way that you can catch the inspiration again to start the new cycle and like actually give it your all again, uh, despite whatever disappointments and things linger in the background from the previous cycles, right?
0: 100%. Two things that come up is one, like one of the like modern esoteric arts that are like super powerful if you start to learn how to do it is um, how to create a compounding asset. I don't know of a more interesting name, but that's just like a technical name for it. But it's like, if you're an artist, as you go through each artist's journey to create some or give birth to some new thing, like ideally... Each journey could produce a new compounding asset that can actually stack on top of one that was produced from the one before so that even they could quote unquote end or not work out. But if you start to have these compounding assets, they can really start to um, change lives and um, we don't need to get into the details, but I can tell by the way that you nodded your head that you know what I mean. And so we'll just... Let that go. No,
1: I, I, I I tell people all the time, like I had to start a popsicle business in order to do Fire in Little Africa, and then I had to do Fire in Little Africa in order to build the five hundred one c three Tulsa Creative Engine, and now I had to like everything that I've done. Even though sometimes those feel like sandcastles that I built, that kind of like dissolved and went away. It's like. They're not really because it is like all part of, 100. and again, like the, the more you look back, the more you're like, oh yeah, like it's all, it's all connected in the in the rearview mirror. And so, uh, yeah, that resonates for sure.
0: Yeah. So, um, you should check out Naval Ravikant's podcasts that he does with David Deutsch, the, um, uh, physicist. Because he talks about, he takes David Deutsch's perspective on uh, the universe and good explanations and he applies it to wealth. And it'll be really interesting for you to feel into, but that, so the compounding asset that allowed you to take what you learned from your first project to build the next one, it's a, um, it's like a castle or a grid work of ideas that you have in your head. And that if you transform those ideas into a d- digital asset or code or whatever that could teach it to people, you're taking your most valuable asset and you're giving it away in a way where it can compound for you. And so, you know, like at the risk of being the guy who tells everyone to make a course, like <laughs> if, if you took your ideas of how you did all of that, And you told the story in a way where people who are interested in doing what you are doing but don't want to go through the 18 years of eating shit and making mistakes could learn directly from you. Like this is the thing that I'm trying to like teach people to think about is it's like all of your projects, not all of them, but most of your projects are constrained by the 3D world. And it's like, Like we do events. Events don't compound. But everything we've learned from events, if we could turn it into code, that can compound. And that only came through doing the things in space-time over and over again and having to learn firsthand all the possible mistakes that can be made, etc. So um, just as like an invitation, you know, both to you, but to also anyone listening, look for the uh, wealth That you've acquired that's knowledge based. And then think about how can I put this into code? How can I make this a digital thing that can help people even while I sleep? And that's where you start to get access to exponential wealth. The other thing that I think is just super interesting is you talked about the 21 year old artists. Like, one of the things that makes us uncomfortable as people is like, there is a disparity in IQ and it doesn't seem that people earn the disparity in IQ. It's just you either have higher IQ or you don't. And high IQ translates to um, success. Not all the time, but it's fucking correlated with income and with uh, getting married and with being happy and being healthy, blah, blah, blah. Artistic talent is like IQ. actually. No, the, the maximum capacity of an individual in a specific craft seems to be IQ-based. But you can, in, you, can get, you can improve at all of it. But like Michael Jordan is an elite player of the art of motherfucking gliding through the air. And it's like you and I could practice our entire lives about how to jump you know, and just how to play basketball. We're never going to be close in art. Like one of the 21 year olds that you're working with might be elite and they're going to get an outcome that none of the other artists or that you got or anyone that you know have ever got. Cause there's just a eliteness there. But for the majority of people like be audacious, be ambitious and be ready for the universe to Mike Tyson you, you know? Which is like, it's probably gonna punch you in the mouth. And it's like, be, hold on to as much audacity as you possibly can, but also be humble enough to learn from when Mike Tyson punches you in the mouth. And it doesn't mean that you can't be successful in the way that you imagine you wanna be, but it very likely means it's not gonna be in the time span that you expect it to be. Yeah, I
1: love that and the it, it kind of makes me think of kind of how some, this conversation started you asking about like how I show up as a business person that works with artists and the funny thing is it's like I'm I'm a lot more Rick Rubin than I am Scooter Braun, right? And <laughs> and as I have like navigated these like hero's journey and I'm like soaking up I'm reading a lot and, and soaking up all of this like esoteric knowledge like When I'm like meeting with an artist, like we're talking a little bit about like strategically, like how to release the single and like, I'm, you know, where, you know, who can we partner with and how can we get the press release out? But a lot of it is like, you need to understand the hero's journey and you need to understand. And so it's this kind of symbiotic relationship of like, you have the talent, you have the high IQ, you don't have the life experience, I have a different kind of talent and IQ and I have all of this life experience and me bringing that to a young artist is called business, you know, and and those are the things that same with like any CEO, like they are probably reading, they are understanding psychology and they're understanding how the game that we're all playing works on a deeper level than most people and then we can kind of utilize that knowledge base to create businesses that generate wealth in the world. But the root of it is kind of like knowledge of self, knowledge of how life works and kind of slowly trying to unravel the the game of life in a way that feels most aligned with what our spirits are wanting us to do. And that, um, yeah, somehow that, that's called business at the end of the day. I love it. <laughs>
0: As like a closing set of questions, um, if you were to dream into, and you don't have to share if you don't want to, um, but like, what is your most audacious artistic goal or vision?
1: Yeah, I think I have two. Um, one would be that with my music company, that I can transform the city of Tulsa into a global hub for culture that much in the way that people think about music coming out of Nashville or Atlanta or New York, that it's possible for people to think of my city for that and for the artists that I'm working with to have cultural impact that is significantly beyond uh, anything that uh, they are um that they have experienced, um, and for that to help heal the world on some level. Uh, my other would be for me to write a screenplay that wins the Academy Award for best original screenplay. (laughs)
0: Love it. All right. Imagine you've lived the life that you have desired to live and you're at the end of your life, maybe that's 85. If you are following Dave Asprey or that other dude who is trying to be an 18-year-old, maybe it's 120 or 180, but whatever, you're at the end of your life. And you know that when you go to sleep that night on that last day, that you will pass. How do you want to spend that last day? And who do you want to spend it with? And what are you guys doing? Um...
1: Great question. I listened to your podcast. So I knew that that question was going to come up. So I thought about this a little bit. But I'm definitely at the beach. Uh, One of my favorite things to do. uh, I did it this morning. I I ride my bike. Tulsa has a really great river. I go on bike rides probably five days a week uh, is how I usually start my day. Uh, So I'm definitely starting the day with a bike ride. if that bike ride was coastal, that would be really sweet. Uh, I'm with my family, my wife, maybe a child, uh, other like living relatives or friends, um, eating some really good Mexican food. Um, <laughs> it's definitely a passion of mine. Um, and then just talking about life, I think that if we're all in the same awareness of like its ending... We are meaning-making creatures. So I think that we're sitting in a circle and we are telling stories about our lives that feel meaningful and that make sense of whatever phenomenon is happening that allows us to know that this is our last day on earth. And listening to music, obviously.
0: Obviously, and playing probably. And if you could write on a piece of paper one thing that your children and maybe even their children would get to read, what would you write?
1: I would say Trust Yourself.
0: And if you could leave one song on their queue to have come up next when they go into Spotify, what would the song be?
1: Uh, I would, so the the first one that comes up that um, I often say is my favorite song of all time is called Steam Engine by My Morning Jacket.
0: Beautiful, I'm going to write that down.
1: And I just saw them at Red Rocks a few weeks ago, and it was I've seen them several times, but it was particularly transcendent my first time at Red Rocks.
0: Chris, I fucking deeply appreciate what you do in the world. I appreciate you reaching out, and I know that our paths will be intertwining going into the future. Uh, For anyone listening who wants to connect or just see what you're up to, what do you got going on and where could they find you?
1: So, uh, Instagram is uh, a good place to follow. I'm real Chris Davis on Instagram. You can follow my company, Pop House Music, on Instagram as well. Uh, you'll see what I'm up to and the artists that I'm working with are up to, uh, and you'll stay tapped into uh, the writing that I'll, that I'll share soon. Beautiful.
0: Well, Chris, thank you. And uh, until next time. Thank you.